Back to Practice has been made possible with support from Allergan and Novartis. We'd like to thank our sponsors for their support of this programming. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Retina Radio, Back to Practice. Necessity is the mother invention, and today we are going to be focusing on technology and COVID-19, which technologies are stopgaps and which will be permanent. Joining me again uh, for another episode is going to be Dr. Maria Baracall from Baracall and Associates in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Joining us from the University Hospital in Bordeaux is the head of ophthalmology, Jean-Francois uh, Korobelnik. And we also have Dr. Manish Nagpal, who is a senior consultant for the Retina Foundation in Guwahati, India. Thank you all for joining me today for this. As we start, it is August 7th, 2020, and globally we have 19 million cases of COVID with 715 deaths. In the United States, we have 4.8 million cases with 160,000 deaths. In India, we have 2 million cases with 41,000 deaths. And in France, we have 231,000 cases with 30,000 deaths. Maria, let's start off with you. Um, how are things in San Juan now? At the beginning, we had a very uh, low rate of, case, uh, of cases because we had a very strict lockdown. Uh, but then in the past uh, about three weeks, our cases have started to increase with the relaxation of the lockdown and the tourist season starting. Uh, so now we have a lot of cases arising and deaths are increasing, not to the levels of many of the states, uh, so now we are being extra cautious with everything and in the practice cases have gone down, you know, people coming in because they're more afraid. So I think we're going to see a waxing and waning, uh, you know, of the way we function until everything stabilizes. Any thoughts on reinstituting a lockdown there or are you pretty far away from doing that? Well, uh, no, I don't think they're planning on that, but we still have curfew from 10 p.m. until 5 a.m. every night. And bars are, you, you know, alcohol is not served after 7 uh, p.m. Uh, and on Sundays, there's like a lockdown of activities and beaches uh, are to be used for sports only to avoid, you know, gathering of lots of people around. You know, we're pretty densely populated, so that is an issue. On the upside, you know, we, we don't have to worry about winter coming and people being inside all the time because we have a tropical weather all the time, which is very helpful because people can be outside, you know, and gather outside. So I think in that sense, you know, our case count is, is lower. And we have instituted masking has been around since March and everybody except, you know, foreigners are really, really strict about masking. So everybody wears masks, uh, which I think has been very helpful. It's very interesting. So are foreigners not required to wear masks or is it just a cultural difference? Uh, well, uh, I think here people really, we have the, you know, we're less individualistic in, in the sense that I, I think, you know, we don't have to think about my rights and this and that, you know, that, that is not an issue. I think everybody, you know, we've been through hurricanes, we've been through a lot of natural disasters and everybody has to band together to, to make things, you know, work. Like after the hurricane, we were without electricity for a very long time and everybody would help your neighbors and everything. So the collective good is actually uh, very strong in the culture. And I think that is, 
you know, it's not just me and what I want to do, you know, it's really what is best for everybody. And, and here we have in many families, like in many places in, in India, it's the extended family. So you live very close to your grandparents and elderly people and young people live together. So I think it's, it's, it's even more relevant uh, to be more wary about being contaminated. Manish, uh, Maria alluded to India. How are things in India, one of the more affected countries in the world? Well, in India, we went into a very early lockdown. You know, when this uh, COVID just came into India and, uh, and everybody thought that it's the best time to have a very strict lockdown. Uh, and we did, we did that for about two months. Uh, but the thing was that by the time we came out, COVID was still there. And as they started opening the lockdown, um, everywhere the numbers went on increasing. And uh, the way the pattern has been, every city which, which was very good earlier, uh, slowly has been uh, affected much more. And those cities which were affected much more in the early phase uh, are slowly now going down in numbers. So it seems that every place has to achieve a certain high and then only uh, it starts to, to go down. So we have numbers all around, although the death rate is not uh, comparable to what, what happened in Italy or, or, or the US death rate. Fortunately, uh, a lot of them are asymptomatic, are low symptomatic and, and not so many are on ventilators, uh, uh, but uh, the numbers are increasing. No, Manish, India is just such a massive country as far as population is concerned. Is there enough testing in India? And then how are the healthcare resources? Are hospitals being overwhelmed or are hospitals keeping up with things? And then the final question is, such an astoundingly low death rate. Uh, India should be congratulated for what they are doing. How are you achieving that low death rate? Yeah, so we are ramping up testing uh, continuously since the testing started. But of course, our numbers are nowhere close to uh, what the West is able to test, but they have been gradually increasing uh, the testing all over just to make sure that they reach out to uh, every, every aspect of the city uh, and, and go on and go on with it. But when you talk of the death rate, uh, I'm not sure if we are doing something really right and not wrong that we have a low death rate. It's probably something as a predisposition. Maybe, you know, in the beginning, people said we have uh, immunity partly because of the BCG vaccine and, and maybe we have a hotter climate and so many things came up but none of us knows why because uh, we have a huge population as you said we have uh, socio-economic issues people are crammed up with each other at a lot of places there are slums there are I mean we have all the things which 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 are an absolute recipe for a disaster but somehow uh, it's not not at that level so we are fortunate for for some other reason like genetic or, or immunity or something else excellent john francois uh france has done astonishingly well uh, as far as managing covid why do you think france has done better than places like italy and germany uh and uk well i think that we had um, uh bad luck and good luck there was at the beginning there was a very big very important cluster in the east of France with thousands of cases but on the west of France there were very few cases and still we have very few cases we have a lower in the west of France we have a lower rate than in Germany so thinking about the country as as one unit 
is, is, is uh, not completely appropriate, I think. We have to think about area in the country. Um, we had an issue with masking at the beginning because they were not available. So the government didn't say wear a mask because there were no masks. Or they say wear a surgical mask, but they didn't recommend a, a, a tissue mask. Uh, now things are going much better. We have masking for everybody and uh, the lockdown is over. <clears throat> and um, we are now with a stable rate. The thing is that the number of new cases diagnosed is increasing since the last two, three weeks without an increase in uh, intensive, intensive care unit patients. So one of the simple explanations is that maybe the new cases are young patients with less comorbidities and who do mild, moderate uh, COVID instead of the elderly that, uh, that were very hardly hit at the beginning. Excellent. And before we get into the ophthalmology specific things, one more question for you, Maria. Since you're in a tropical climate in San Juan, do you all have a flu season or, or is that not such a big deal in Puerto Rico? Well, we do have a flu season, but it's not, um, flu is not as big, uh, you know, we don't have as many deaths from flu as places uh, in the U.S. and it's not so bad just because you know, we are not locked inside, uh, so contamination from people just being held inside all the time is, is not an issue. So I think that's an advantage that we have. And, and we, I see that, you know, I worry about winter coming in places, you know, that have cold weather just because people will be cramped inside. You know, and I can just say in the U.S., we have such a struggle here uh, because we have different parts of the states that are affected differently. And I think early on, we locked down the entire United States uh, when things were really bad in New York and in Boston. And, you know, and now it's really hard to convince people in areas that are hotspots that they need to really do the right thing. We also have a tremendous amount of political strife and so much disinformation through social media about whether masks work, whether they don't work, is COVID real or the death rates real? It's just astonishing. Some of the freedoms that we have here are actually detrimental to what we're doing. And it was very interesting to hear Maria say that Puerto Rico has more of a community attitude than we do here in the States. It's very indiv individualistic here and very focused on individual freedoms. And that right now is working against us, I must say. Maria, in your clinics, have things changed over the last couple of weeks since we last talked? Yes. Uh... Things were, you know, our cases were really, really low. So when we came out of lockdown, cases were beginning to uh, pick up and then they, they eased the restriction of only doing emergent cases. So we were able to do as many elective cases as we wanted, uh, as long as patients had testing and we had PCR available readily for everybody. So things were getting more normalized in that sense. But since the cases have been increasing in the last couple of weeks, and now, you know, with the upswing of cases in the states, we are not able to get as many reactives to do PCR testing. So that is more limited now. So we get a lot of case cancellations because of the lack of PCR testing. And also, you know, I started in the last couple of weeks and so many cases were coming in, I started not seeing some patients that were not emergent. So I go through the lists and if it's someone who's 90 years old, you know, who is high risk, and just wants to come for their yearly appointment, I call them up and I tell them, you know, 
look, you know, let's postpone this, you know, maybe a month or two until the cases are lower, because I really don't want people to get, you know, to get contaminated, even though we take all the precautions, you know, everybody's masked, we have all the chairs by, you know, six feet, they wait in the car. So we're still doing all of that. Anish, in India, how are things from a retina standpoint? Has this affected your clinic significantly? Describe to me what you're doing differently. Yes, so uh, when the early lockdowns began, we started working twice a week and just digging in a, uh, emergency cases, uh, you know, detachments and endocrinitis or something like that. But, but we kind of uh, refused most of the patients. Uh, a lot of it was done on the phone by trying to find out our old patients from the case files. We would just call them and uh, describe them that this is not an emergency and it's best to wait. So initially we started off like that twice a week and then we kind of started working uh, just a few hours in the morning every day. And even as we stand today, uh, we work from nine to two, just the first half. Uh, in a few weeks, we will start working our second half uh, as well. Uh, but through this whole time, in the first two months, we did only emergencies, but slowly we have now, over the last uh, two months, I've started uh, taking in planned cases of all sorts. Although that's a very small number, patients are not uh, willing to come uh, as well uh, as long as they have planned cases. So, so it's a slow process. We are working at about 45% of our work at this stage uh, as I talked to you. Yeah. And how about your referring doctors? Are they seeing a similar level of patients or are they totally shut down? Your ophthalmologist, your optometrist? Who, uh, which ones? The, the referring doctors, your ophthalmologist, your optometrist. Oh, yeah. yeah, so, so, so this is for, for when you ask for retina, uh, this is what, what is about going on because retina cases are still there and we work at about 45, 50%. But the cataract uh, and planned corneal stuff, planned cataract stuff is extremely low. Uh, I mean, the referring doctors uh, from, from that whole pool, they are not operating much because most of those are planned surgeries and that's why that work is is much slower. It's at 20, 25% only. Uh, that you know, one of the things that we experienced here when we went into shutdown was that we continued to work just like you did. And we went down to about that 45% level, but our referring doctors shut down and that gave patients with emergencies, new patients, no avenue to be, get into us. They didn't know they should call a retina specialist. They would just, right. they, you know, new wet macular degeneration or retinal detachment, and they would call their local eye doctor and the message would be, we're closed. And so then they would sit for, you know, four weeks with a retinal detachment. Are you worried that that's going to happen in India? Uh, I don't think that uh, shutdown, I mean, they've not totally shut down in that sense. So they, they're still looking at patients. So we're not getting that set of patients which you're talking about that they come to us as a first line. Uh, in fact, uh, that whole cycle has slowed down because they are seeing those patients uh, and sending whatever is retina to us, but not necessarily uh, uh, anything which is planned and, and their own work uh, from which they usually make complications is not happening. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So are you getting COVID testing uh, prior to all of your surgeries, Manish, or are you, are you deferring COVID testing? No, we are not doing it for all our cases. We are doing it for all any case which requires a general anesthesia because our anesthetist needs to be protected and uh, and so they need it as a requirement. But all our local cases, uh, uh, we are not doing it as mandatory unless there is a symptom or 
or something that uh, we are worried about and we get it done. But as I speak, I do know of a few colleagues uh, elsewhere in different cities uh, who have started this practice recently. Uh, and in this last week, somebody was telling me that we've started doing it for all our cases. So, so it's a varied pattern and, and maybe we may switch to something like that as the testing becomes much more easily accessible. But as I speak, uh, we are only doing it for general anesthesia cases. And, you know, Maria alluded to this. Here in the States, we are doing COVID testing for most of our non-emergent cases, for all of our non-emergent cases. And it just adds a layer of complication in getting that testing and getting the test results. And, and frankly speaking, in some areas, we're having a difficulty in getting the very rapid tests. So some patients have to get tested a week before their surgery, which makes scheduling just a logistical issue. Jean-Francois, uh, in France, how are things for you as far as practice is concerned? Are you back up to 100% of your normal volume? What things are you doing differently now than you were, say, at the beginning of the pandemic? Well, during the lockdown, we reduced uh, the activity to about something like 30% of what we did before. Uh, we selected the cases that needed to continue treatment, like uh, wet AMD cases, of course, renal detachments, and we, we canceled all what could wait, like cataract surgeries, some injections for DME patients. Um, and the, the lockdown lasted two months. We, we opened uh, mid-May, and now we are going back to not normal. We are about at 70% of our previous activity. Um, and we'll discuss that later, I'm sure. But uh, we, we changed things uh, to make the uh, duration of the stay of the patient in the clinic much shorter. Um, and exactly as Manish said, we, we do all patients under local without testing, and we do all patients under general anesthesia with testing done one or two days before the surgery. And this is mandatory. The anesthesiologist really requires that. Otherwise, the patient is just canceled. So we switch many patients from general to local, and uh, it works pretty well, in fact. And obviously, you're doing retinal detachments, macular holes, or you're doing macular holes and epiretinal membrane surgeries and everything. Well, we, we, we canceled that during the lockdown, but now we are doing them again. Well, we are asking them if they want to have surgery or if they want to, to wait for more months. But uh, as the pandemic is lasting, <laughs> um, uh, saying, okay, we'll do that in two, three months where thing, when things get better, I'm not sure that things will get much better in two, three months. So we, we, we ask the patient, do you want to have surgery now? Or do you want to wait? And um, it's up to them. Some of, when, some of them wait, saying, well, I'm okay, finally, I, I can wait. And some others are really asking for surgery and um, it's okay. I mean, it's, it's not so bad. The, the issue now is um, transportation because in the clinic, we are extremely careful, as Maria said. Um, in their place, they are okay, but transportation can be uh, a time when they get uh, contaminated. So they, they are very careful and we try to be very careful. And is that because most patients take public transportation to get to and from the hospital? Well, they may take public transportation. They may also take a car with someone driving them and the driver may be family or a neighbor or a company and then they feel they are exposed. And some of the drivers, they don't want to work at the moment. They need the money, but on the other end, they don't want to work because they don't want to be exposed with, with what they think are sick people, sick, sick patients. 
So um, it's getting better in transportation now, but it, it, it was very complicated uh, during the lockdown because the lockdown was extremely um, well uh, followed and everybody was really uh, at home. And so the drivers were at home. So for the patients that had to come, they couldn't find the driver to get them there. And you, you alluded to this earlier, but what sorts of things are you doing differently to keep patients safer, to uh, increase the PPE and increase the social distancing and those sorts of things? Well, for those who come without a mask, masking is mandatory in the building. Um, they come alone. Uh, we ask any relative, any, anyone except for children, anyone to wait outside. And um, we reduced the things that we were doing previously, and we may discuss that later, but we, we, we have a kind of a straightforward uh, uh, line for the patients to be taken care of, and they, they, they spend much less time inside the building as compared to what we did before. And how are you achieving that on a workflow basis? Are you doing more OCTs and less dilation, more imaging? Well, we, we, uh, to go in the details, we very often, in, in the retina practice, uh, very often we skip visual acuity evaluation. Um, we used to do a refraction at every single visit uh, for AMD patients, for example. Uh, we don't do that anymore. We, we do that, we decided uh, to do that between once and twice a year, and that's all. And in the meantime, we do the OCT, um, depending on the physician, some do fundus photography, some don't. And based on the OCT and the comparison with the previous exam, we decide if there is disease activity or not. And then we, we modify the um, uh, next appointment because we do a lot of, a lot, almost all, all our cases are on the treat and extend regimen. And some of them, we switch them to fixed for a while. Uh, but now we are back to doing OCTs at each visit to try to uh, uh, customize uh, the duration of the of the of the treatment. Are you dilating patients at every exam, or no dilation no. for many of these? Patients? No, 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 no dilation. No, no, too much and time. What, what about <laughs> pressure measurement? Are you doing pressure measurement as well, or just coming in an OCT and treating? Well, we 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 measure the pressure for patients receiving uh, steroids. Uh, but for uh, anti-VGF uh, treatments, uh, we don't, no. Gotcha. Of, course we have, we, of course, we have glaucoma patients. Huh? So, so for the glaucoma patients, it, it's a different story. But good. talking about the retina clinic, uh, no, we don't. Wow. Very good. Very good. Manish, what are you doing differently now to ensure that these patients are seen in a timely and safe fashion? Yeah, so uh, when they come in at the, the clinic from outside, we used to earlier do a pre-screening uh, uh, sonometry, AirPuff one screening. Uh, so now everything is restricted to only those where we know patient has uh, previous history of glaucoma and we do the AirPuff sonometry uh, as far as possible. And uh, But now we do it in selected patients only after the patient has been seen by us and if you feel uh, there is a need for a pressure check, we do it. I don't have patients sitting on a sit lamp uh, unless I really uh, suspect something and I need to have them sit down. Uh, even on an indirect with a 20D, I'm doing a cursory screening. I'm not doing a depressed, spiral depression and, and looking at far peripheries uh, in most of the patients. Uh, and I would just do a gross look and derive it a diagnosis. And, and uh, we would do 
OCT and OCT angiography sparingly wherever indicated, uh, but are not doing uh, FAs or ICGs uh, uh, as much as possible. Extremely uh, essential that I would do it, but not, not as a routine. And also we use wide field imaging, uh, which you know helps us see the periphery and also document it if there is a lesion. Uh, we like to get one of those photos done so that it's easy for us to uh, establish a baseline as well as explain the patient rather than trying to look for it and, and spend time on the patient trying to document it ourselves. And do you repeat that at every visit or do you repeat it at certain intervals in certain patients as far as the wide field photography is concerned? Sorry? Do you repeat the wide field imaging at certain, at certain time frames or do you just do it at baseline? So at baseline, then only uh, SOS if it's if it's required on a follow-up. If you if you've treated a hole or a lattice or something in the periphery, and then you just want to document it uh, well, I would do it at the end of a month. But otherwise, uh, only as a baseline. And as far as treatment is concerned, are you treating more often? Uh, doing more treat and extend? How has this changed your treatment parameters? Yes, yeah, so we don't now do OCTs as a routine to look for changes for us to decide uh, whether to give an injection or not, except for those who have come the first time and or we are trying to look for a recurrence in a patient who's already under treatment since a long time, uh, or if there's a symptom we can't explain. But otherwise, uh, they're all put on regular regimes, yeah? you know, three injections to begin with, and then uh, it goes on to treat and extend or PRN based on uh, the type of patient that we have, whether it's an AMD patient or a diabetic patient, it would vary on that. And, do you, and Manish, do you find that you're doing more laser for your diabetic patients than you were previously in case those patients can't come back? Um, uh, the PRPs, you mean, yes. Uh, macular laser, I'm not doing uh, so much. In fact, uh, I'm, I'm trying to avoid I would rather do an injection and, and not do a macular laser at, in this period. But PRPs, yes, we are, we are doing uh, as often as we can on these patients because, as you said, yeah, yeah we, we do them more often. Maria, you had a great debate at the most recent VitBuckle meeting about early surgery, and you can convince anybody of anything. Um, you talked about early surgery, but let's talk a bit about PRP first. Are you doing more PRP now than you were in the past? Well, I, I, I really never, uh, I have never adapted the uh, anti-VEGF for patients that have diabetics with proliferative disease because we know that the absentee uh, rate for visits is over 25%. It's 25% in, in everybody, but in diabetics, it's close to 50%. So I always worry that they're gonna get neovascular glaucoma. So uh, if I only use the anti-VEGFs more for the macular edema, those I treat always with anti-VEGF, but I always do PRP on my, uh, on my diabetics and I explain it to the patients. I've never had anyone who chose the monthly injections versus, you know, the PRP. Uh, I offer it to them, but I also explain, you know, the problem with them not coming in. So I've always done a lot of PRP um, in, in that sense. But the injections for edema, uh, you know, when we think about patients that may not need to come in as, as frequently, well, it would be those versus the AMD patients, you know, the macular degeneration patients. Uh, the way I have streamlined them is that if they're in a set regimen, I don't do OCTs at, at all the visits. 
and I may not do uh, visions at all the visits. So I usually like alternate, you know, one visit with OCT, one without and the like, just to get them in and out as quickly as possible. I also use white field imaging a lot. I do it at every uh, initial visit. If somebody comes in complaining of floaters and the like, uh, and that is very helpful, you know, in managing some of these patients. Who, who specifically do you get the wide field imaging on? Do you get them on every patient? Do you get them mainly on your diabetic patients, patients with retinal detachment or peripheral pathology? How do you do that? Well, I really like getting it on all diabetic patients, uh, all the patients that come in with, you know, hemorrhage, uh, patients that come in complaining of floaters. Uh, I really like, and, and it's very helpful to show them but it's actually there, you know, if you're a patient and you're seeing 2020 and somebody tells you that they, you need laser because you have, you know, a break in the periphery, you know, it, it's, it's very helpful to actually show them. And it saves you time uh, as far as doing scleral depression and being a long time with the patient. You still have to do it to really see, you know, the periphery in some cases, but it's, it, it streamlines. It, it streamlines. Uh, I also really like white field imaging uh, and geography. I think you see a lot of uh, ischemia in the periphery that you may miss. You have some eyes that look pretty good and then you do the angiogram and you see neovascularization, subtle neovascularization. And along the lines of treatment, Maria, are you doing more treatments um, now in patients doing more treat and extend? And also, as you alluded to earlier, are you doing more surgery on some of these diabetic patients in this COVID timeframe so that you can just get them taken care of and not have to worry about them? Uh, well, yes, I'll start with the last one. Uh, when I see a diabetic that comes in with a vitreous hemorrhage and he's younger, uh, uh, I always offer surgery. I think, uh, especially if they have significant disease, I think it's, it, as I have shown, you know, some of these cases can progress very, very quickly to attraction detachment. So I think it is very helpful to actually do that. You know, I of course do laser during the surgery. This is not just vitrectomy, you know, you do a vitrectomy, remove the hyaloid. Because once you remove the hyaloid, you basically eliminate their chances of them developing attraction detachment. So in a sense, it's sort of like a long-term curative uh, procedure. I do treat an extent for the anti-VEGFs, uh, but the ones that are set, I have some patients that I, that I may inject every three months uh, or, you know, I, that, that is like the longest that I actually go with them. And, you know, they just come in and, and I, in those, if it's every three months, then I do an OCT just to make sure that they don't have increased activity. But the ones that are that that actually require the injections every month, I don't usually OCT them at every visit. And the same with pressures. I am just doing pressures in many of the patients. We use a tonopen, you know, during the COVID for everybody, but only on new patients and patients that have a history of, of glaucoma. Patients that just come in for injections and have been stable, no, I don't see a need to do that in this situation. So what I'm hearing here more and more as we focus on technology is basically that we have, most people are relying on OCT as their primary means of evaluating these patients. And then the valuable role of photography, specifically ultra wide field photography with angiography and the diabetic patients to help us diagnose these patients, explain to these patients what's going on and establish a good baseline. And, that actually may be a little bit different than what we were doing before. Jean-Francois, in the operating room, are you doing anything differently, utilizing any technology differently in the OR? 
No, not really. Uh, we were very careful before, and we are still very careful to avoid endophthalmitis, of course. And um, the only thing that has changed is the protocol when we need to do general anesthesia. That's the big, that's the big difference. In that situation, everybody is out of the room. There is in the room only the patient, the anesthesiology nurse, and the anesthesiologist, only three people. And they do the general anesthesia. Then we wait for some minutes so that the air in the room is clean. And then we get in. We do the surgery, then we go out, and then the patient is taken care of and is moved out uh, directly. So, so it's, it's time consuming. Uh, and of course, the anesthesiologist is wearing a protective uh, screen uh, above the mask and, and, and all, all the PPEs that, that, that we know. So they, they are very careful. And, and as I said, we now, it's mandatory to have a, a PCR maximum two days before the anesthesia. Um, but for the, from the surgeon point of view, there is no really uh, changes since COVID, no. Manish, same question for you. Are you doing anything different surgically for these patients? No, I think I, I totally agree with what uh, Jean-Francois said. Uh, we do the same. We, as a surgeon, I'm not doing anything differently. I'm wearing the same masks, the same uh, Counts, uh, everything is disposable. Uh, however, there are some practices uh, across India which which were doing different sorts of uh, non-disposable re-sterilizing things, which have had to change uh, uh, these practices. But since we were doing it, uh, we've not made a major change. And the only changes uh, for GAs and especially where anesthetist needs to wear a full PPE for the locals also, the anesthetist does have a shield and the and the extra gear. The only other thing we do is when the patient is lying down and we used to have that breathable, disposable material on top of their face going on the nose. Uh, now we keep an offside and, and make sure there is an oxygen supply going in from below, but we keep an offside so that uh, there is no connection between the surgeon's breathing area and the, and the patient's, just in case the patient uh, coughs or sneezes or something like that. So apart from that, I don't think we are doing anything different. And Maria, you're an advocate for 3D heads-up surgery. Do you think that decreases the potential risk for surgeons in this COVID era? Well, I, I, I think it does uh, because you're really not uh, as close to the patient as, uh, as you know, with a conventional microscope. Uh, the other thing that we're doing differently, all the patients come in with a mask, so I take the mask on the patient, their own mask, so, or, you know, we usually put a, a, an or a mask just so that air doesn't come in and they put a suction also under the drape to suck away all of the breathing. Uh, and the 3D is very helpful, but I also wear a, an N95 with a surgical mask on top myself. Um, but, um, but I do not wear a PPE, I do not wear a shield because that would interfere with, uh, with my vision, especially with the 3D. Uh, but that said, you know, the one concern that I do have is, you know, with patients' masks is basically their breath coming over towards the eyes in post-op patients, you know. That is a thing that I have in the back of my mind as far as endophthalmitis and, uh, and the possibility of that, which I, I haven't seen any cases, but it's, it's something that sort of worries me somewhat. 
you know, because most patients wear the masks improperly. It's not really fitted over here. And just like it fogs when you're examining them, you know, your lens fogs as you're seeing them, uh, all that, or if I'm doing a laser uh, or examining them, what I do is I tape it down so that doesn't happen, but it concerns me when they go home with their masks and all those, all that breath uh, with potential bacteria goes up into the surgical eye. And do you, you do that as well for injections? I don't tape it for injections, but I hold it down, you know, uh, I hold it down as I'm injecting. Yeah, because I, I personally worry about that with injections. At first, I thought this was going to be great for injections, patients wearing masks, until you see these ill-fitting masks that just the air from the breath blows straight up into the eyes. And actually, I found on those rare patients that I use the 90 on when I need to look at the slit lamp, you have to take their mask down because otherwise it will fog your 90 uh, diopter lens and you just cannot get a good view. Uh, Maria, telemedicine. Are you using any telemedicine, any telehealth? Yes, I am. Uh, I, I don't have, my patients are all elderly, so they really are not key in using a computer, but I do a lot of phone telehealth uh, with patients. You know, they send me pictures with their phone. Uh, let's say their eyes red or post-op, if they have a question, uh, oh, my eyes, my lid is swollen or whatever. I said, send me a picture. So I do a lot of that. I would say that every day I call back maybe two or three patients for questions like that. Instead of in the past, you know, many of them would be coming in. Uh, uh, but now they're getting used to that and I think it's very efficient actually. Jean-Francois, telehealth in France, is it being widely adopted? Or are you using it for your patients? Um, no, I'm, I'm not using it. We, we tried and um, Quite quickly, we found that uh, the answers are not clear enough so that we can have a, a clear view on the situation. Some of them will say, I'm okay, and they do not realize that uh, something is going on because they do not patch the other eye. Some of them are saying they have a lot of pain, and when we tell them to come, in fact, they have just minimal uh, punctuate keratitis. Uh, so it's, I, we found it's extremely difficult to evaluate the situation by phone. Um, so we, we stopped doing that, yeah. Um, some, some of my colleagues uh, are calling the patients, instead of asking the patient to come back the next day after surgery or one week after surgery, they replace that by a call. And if there is no pain, if the vision is clear, then they will say, okay, let's see just one month post-op and that's all. So in a, in post-op situation, maybe you can avoid one visit to the clinic by uh, giving a phone call. But for all the chronic patients, AMD, diabetic patients, etc., um, we, we found it was not very efficient and not very safe. Manish, same in India. Are you using telemedicine? Is it being utilized routinely? No, not in a big way. The only telemedicine you could say is when a patient has cannot come to us straight away and has gone to a local doctor and has a report and he WhatsApps us or messages the report and then we can guide them related to the severity or urgency, but, but it's limited to that, not about directly trying to uh, you know get pictures of the eye. Patients can't get access to that, so it's very difficult to understand what the problem is unless an eye surgeon has seen them. And I just want to take a few minutes here to talk about 
um, future technologies. And these technologies may or may not be here during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, but uh, hopefully they won't be. I mean, the pandemic is over, but let's talk about two things in particular. Number one is home OCT, and number two is port delivery system, an extended drug delivery system that requires surgical implement implementation, which we just received the data on the phase three study at ASRS. Manish, how will these two things change your practice, either in the COVID environment or the non-COVID environment? Well, it, it makes sense if, if we have access to an uh, OCD picture of an eye, uh, we, we can derive information out of it and then can understand is there any new change in that from what was there before and would be useful for sure. And as far as the port delivery, again, because it's a, a sustained long-term delivery, it's preferred because patient doesn't have to come back so often and, and you have the drug going in for a longer period. And I'm sure if, if this works, this will be great for post-COVID as well. Uh, only thing is it all amounts to what kind of cost effectivity it would have in India. We have, our economics are different and, and it does have a role to play. So it would be based on how it's available uh, commercially for the patients in the long run. Jean-Francois, same question, home OCT and port delivery system. How do those two things fit in during this time and in the future? But first, I've seen a demo for the OCT, and it's really impressive. Uh, it's really easy to have a scan, and you have the artificial intelligence comparing with a previous exam and detecting if there is anything new or not. So the technology is available. Um, but I am really, I, I like very much a proactive treatment to treat before the recurrence. So I think that as long as we use drugs, we don't need homo OCT. We just try to extend and we need to control with an OCT. And I don't like to wait for the recurrence to come because some of the rec recurrences are really bad and we, we lose vision. And that vision loss is not going to come back. But for the pole delivery system, it's a different story. We've seen in the studies that some patients, the, the, the drug is there and the benefit of the drug is there for four or five months. But some of them last 12, maybe more. So for the, the, the pulse delivery system with the OCT, I think it's a perfect fit for patients to avoid many, many visits. Then there is a coverage issue, of course, the money issue. How do we cover that? How do we fund that? that, that it should be somehow associated. We should have this kind of a, a bundle with a, the PDS plus the OCT system. That's brilliant. I have not thought about that, but you're absolutely right. Those things are so complimentary. Maria, home OCT, port delivery, how will those fit into your uh, treatment of patients? Well, the, the home OCT is a great technology, but I think, you know, my patient population uh, is generally uh, poor. So I, I don't see that as being a big player, you know, moving forward. Uh, in my patients. But the port delivery system, I'm actually very excited about. I think that is really the way to go, especially, you know, it's only been for AMD, but uh, for younger patients that will need injections for many, many years, uh, and maybe for diabetics, I think it will be fabulous. Uh, because then you will feel safer treating someone that has proliferative disease or pre-proliferative disease 
with anti-VEGFs. I think that that would, you know, prevent progression really nicely. So I'm actually really excited about that. But of course, I have a surgical bias. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that uh, we, we all do, for sure. Um, I want to just take a second to thank Manish, uh, Jean-Francois, and Maria for joining us on this episode of New Retina Radio COVID-19 coverage back to practice. Thank you guys for joining us. Stay safe and tune in in the next couple of weeks for our next episode. Back to Practice has been made possible with support from Allergan and Novartis. We'd like to thank our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Brynmar Communications LLC, herein BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.